Hello and welcome back to another episode of You Want to Do What with Dan and Julie. Today we've got Kia Wenham-Flat on, who is a rugby strength and conditioning coach. Hi Kia, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Um, do you want to tell everyone a little bit about what you actually do? Yeah, so you know, a few different things, but I'd kind of tell people that the, how my career started was that I wanted to be a professional rugby player and around the age of 15 I realised I was terrible at rugby and five foot ten and slow and chubby and not a good athlete so you basically described me there so um... i thought it was me actually (laughs) (laughs) i know it um it was just very obvious you know within professional rugby the the kids that make it that are not in the system by kind of 15 16 17 18 are remarkable precisely because the, the standard path is you you identify talent very young and develop it and then those are the ones that make it and uh, I did not fall into that very small minority of athletes so what I decided to do was to try and be involved in um, professional rugby at the highest level that I could be in whatever capacity I could be so I'd initially tried to to beat back the tide of how terrible an athlete I was by training and hit the gym when I was 15 and got got a taste for it and always kind of um didn't find the academic side too challenging in school so i i had a a little bit of a, a talent for that and enthusiasm for training so i decided all right i'll be a strength coach and you know i've been pretty much doing that ever since i spent about 10 years in professional rugby um i did uh, several years in college football and most recently i've decided to take time off from that to build my online business which is coach education so after realizing that uh, pr- being a player in professional rugby was not what you wanted to do what was sort of your your path did you know you wanted to go into strength and conditioning and how did you sort of get there well i did but i'd you know i'd like i said the, the academic side did not really stress me out too much Like I kind of like half joking tell people that I never really worked hard until I was 25, which is true. Um, I just kind of always gave it my best and didn't worry too much. And I was always kind of towards the top of the class. Now my grades did start to come down as, you know, the higher up you go. So there was that. And then I kind of like beat myself up a little bit mentally for thinking, well, I want to go work in strength and conditioning because I didn't feel it was like quote unquote academic enough, which is obviously not true. So I had a a brief stint where I started a degree in psychology and was miserable doing it. And I thought, well, if I'm not enthusiastic about it now, imagine when I'm going to be in, you know, 45 years, which is age of retirement, I'm going to, I'm only going to be less enthusiastic. So I thought, right, this is not for me. So I I quit my first degree and then had a second attempt um, to get a degree in sports science. And, um, you know, upon graduation, realized to my horror that I was not a coach. I was a, a researcher and um, I'd never coached a group of athletes and uh, I'd never worked in a team environment. And those are apparently quite big barriers if you want to work in a team environment and work with <laughs> athletes. <laughs> so, you know, two two years of wandering in the wilderness to uh, to get that experience. So what was your first position as a, uh, a strength and conditioning coach? So I graduated in 2008 and immediately had three 
interviews for uh, internships and they all went absolutely atrocious. <laughs> I've kind of said in um, you know, seminars that I've done since that one of them was at Nottingham Forest and the, the walk, if I remember correctly, from Nottingham Forest Stadium to the bus station is about 15 minutes. <laughs> and having left that interview, I got the rejection phone call before I got to the bus station. It was that bad. Oh, no. Yeah. So oh. that the the kind of realization of you know not actually enough practical coaching experience not enough kind of on the floor in the trenches experience i went off and became a personal trainer right which you're not training athletes but you are training people so it's still transferable in my opinion and i was chipping away for two years basically try again fail again find out the reason i failed go off and work on that and you know, I got rejected for a, a regional job with the LTA up in Bolton. I think I had another couple of um, interviews for internships that I didn't get. And then eventually, on the third year of trying, I got a, an interview to be an academy intern at London Wasps. This is back when they were London Wasps. And that was my first opportunity. So it took me two years to get the opportunity to, to work full-time for free. So and it, yeah, it sounds... Ahead. It sounds like for a lot for a lot of people, they'd assume you go to school, you go to university, you get your degree, you come out, you get a job. But obviously, mm-hmm. you need experience working with athletes, working in that team environment, working coaching. So, yeah. what could you have done to get that experience prior to going to university or during university? You know, I could have done I could have done uh, a lot of different a lot of things differently. Um, I'd say some of that is on me because. I maybe had that misunderstanding about what it is that actually gets you hired. Because I think it's almost like in, in truth, the higher education system, you're not a student, you're a customer. So when, when you're giving them money, they have an incentive to give you a degree and they have an incentive to say this thing that we're effectively selling you, you do have to work for it, but this thing that we're selling you is going to open so many doors and you're like, Oh yeah, when I get my degree, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to get, you know, all these, all these jobs that I want. It's just not the case. Um, there is value in a degree program, but the, the value that employers hire on is, is this person going to come in and, help move us towards what it is we want to do. And whereas a qualification is a suggestion that the person has the capacity to learn how to do that experience is a documented track record of the person can do that much, much more so. So what I should have done was I should have tried to expose myself and become, become comfortable in the environment that it was, I wanted to thrive in. However bad I would have been doing it. Um, and, you know, unfortunately for me, that had to come after uh, graduation. But then, you know, what I think as well is, is a major weakness of strength and conditioning in particular is we have degree programs that are being run by people that have never actually made their living putting food on the table, training elite athletes in the real world. It's very, very common to have you know, uh, lecturers and program leaders that have always been lecturers and program leaders. So if, if you want to become uh, a millionaire running a small business, should you go to the person that's, you know, started and sold five different companies or should you go ask an economics professor? There's value to both. But to me, 
you want to learn from the people that have gone there and, and done it in the real world. Um, and it's just not the case when you look at other fields. Like, for example, if, can you imagine if you were running uh, a medical school and you'd never actually been uh, uh, a consultant or a practitioner in the real world? It just wouldn't happen. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, you're, you're teaching people how to fly airplanes. You've never flown an airplane. It's, it's a little bit of a disconnect. And mm. I think in, in their defense, the degree of competition in the field right now means that there's just, there's only so many seats on the bus and there's a lot more coaches than there are coaching jobs. So it's going to be uh, just a fact that you're, you're probably going to have lecturers that have never actually kind of like done it at the elite level. Um, and that's a problem. <laughs> um, so going back to your first sort of uh, real gig at Wasps, how was that? Did you learn a lot? And is there things that you might have done differently in your first kind of role? I kind of jokingly tell all my subsequent interns now that I've hired interns. There's two kinds of interns. There are those that uh, struggle and f- think about quitting and liars. <laughs> so <laughs> it is a miserable experience because it, it's a fun experience, mm. but ultimately what you're doing is when it's a full-time unpaid internship, you are gambling, um, losing money and struggling and worrying about, you know, it happened to me, my card getting, um, declined at netto, (laughs) which, oh yeah. Like it was, it was very, very tough and you're like scraping and you're, you're effectively betting a year of your life on, I'm going to make it. Mm. But if, you know, I, I kind of tell people like there's a reason they don't do internships for, for McDonald's and that's because nobody wants to do it. Yeah. And the reason internships exist for professional sport, investment banking, you know, uh, high profile media companies, all that kind of stuff is because it's a great job and people want to do it. What you have to be aware of is there are, there are organizations that give those opportunities because the interns gain from it as much as the organization. And there are organizations that do it for free labor. So you have to tread carefully with that. I think a lot of internships just produce glorified cleaners (laughs) and looking at my time because, you know, chips on my shoulder. I've got a few of them, but one of the chips on my shoulder was, well, I'm not a first team intern. So on the intern uh, pecking order, I'm a lower down intern because I work with the academy. Mm. But in reality, I was coaching from day one and effectively made myself indispensable to my mentor. Whereas the first team interns, because there were five strength coaches, they just did the piss tests and um, got out the pads and did data and all that kind of stuff. So it was a blessing in disguise for me that I had that opportunity and what I've, what I've tried to do to, to pay it forward is always make sure that they get just as much out of it as we do. Mm. And they, we always tried to hire interns that would leave the place better than when they arrived. And going into your sort of mid career, later career, 
what yeah. is an average day for a, a strength and conditioning coach? What are you actually doing day to day? It varies wildly because you, you have those phases to, uh, to the season. And then, you know, there's, there's a rhythm to the year, which is, you know, it could be off season, uh, preseason, like a training camp, then you hit the in season and there's, there's a rhythm to the week. So there's going to be a game day, day off. There's going to be a low day, high day. The players are going to have a day off. Then there's going to be like a medium high day. Then there's going to be like a pre game day. And then it all starts over again. Mm. So, you know, at my busiest, I've done 80 hours a week. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I've done days where I would, you know, just most recently I was getting up uh, at five o'clock. I was in the car by five thirty. I was at work by six thirty. I was doing um, 13 to 14 hours in the facility with a tiny break in between. And then I would get in the car, come home, go to bed, get up, do it again. And I was doing that like six days a week. Um, but there have been other times in my career where, you know, I, I got paid uh, $16,000 a month to sit at home in England. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, it, there, there's, uh, yeah. You, you, you said earlier about the interns doing things like piss tests and yeah. uh, looking at data. So what sort of, uh, obviously to my mind, you know, strength and conditioning, you're, you're helping the athletes improve well with their fitness and overall strength. But what does that involve you actually doing to achieve that? Have you ever heard that like communist manifesto thing about, is it from, from uh, each is each is means to each is needs. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you're, you are going to impact the, the ultimately you serve the mission of the organization, which is to win. That's what you should do. Some people lose sight of that, but that's what you should do. And every member of the high performance staff is going to contribute to that mission requisite with the level of experience uh skill and judgment that they have so when you're an intern you, you serve the mission by collecting the piss pots <laughs> um when you are a low level assistant coach you do that by um running you know structured training sessions and implementing programs that may have been designed by other people but you know more than the athletes when it comes to how to, um, you know, regulate and, and organize a training program. And when you're a, a more senior assistant, it may be your job to design the training program that's been given. You, you've been given uh, a set of criteria that you have to fulfill by the head of department or a set of outcomes that you have to increase and then it may be that you're designing the overall program and instructing your assistants how to uh, implement that. And when you're ahead of performance, you have to realize that, unfortunately, there's no such thing as strength and conditioning. There's just training that has more of a physical emphasis. And there's other forms of training that have more, uh, more technical emphasis and a tactical emphasis and a psychological emphasis that all are valuable. And unfortunately, when you... Uh, emphasize one you have to take away from the others so everyone that touches the athlete wants their pound of flesh and somebody has to be in the middle of that to say okay well now's the time that you get to do this and unfortunately you three guys are going to have to do less of this and you're basically spinning plates 
So when you get to like a high performance director or high performance manager level, you do very, very little training of athletes and you spend most of your day having conversations and trying to facilitate um, decisions that are made in the wider training of the athlete with the athlete at the center of everything. And it's mostly conversations where you're trying to persuade people to do things that they don't want to do at, in the, at the expense of the short term to benefit the long term. So I guess within the realms of, um, of strength and conditioning training, there are a lot of different ethos. And how did you go about developing yours and then also trying to implement yours with your athletes? Well, I think if you, if you read a book by Ray Dalio called Principles, he, he talks about this kind of five-step process of, of how do you get what you want. And I, I think it's, it's extremely powerful and applicable to um, strength and conditioning. It's applicable to anything, but it's applicable to, to what we do in strength and conditioning. And the process is basically, you know, what is objectively true? What do you want? What's the biggest barrier to, to what you want? And what is the root cause of that? What is the most expedient course of action you can take to remove that barrier? And how do you see it through to completion? And then you just repeat that again and again and again. So what I feel is an extremely valuable mental exercise that gets neglected within sport is um, organizations, departments, and individuals do not take the time to accurately define what it is they want to achieve. So Socrates said, the beginning of wisdom lies in the definition of terms. And if you read a book called The Book of Why by Judea Pearl, which is an absolute, you know, I won't say the word. It's extremely tough (laughs) mentally. (laughs) But what he talks about is he says, you cannot answer a question that you have not asked. And you cannot ask a question that you have no words for. So really, in order to reverse engineer the process of what it is you want to do, you have to sit everyone in a room and say, right, what is it that we actually want to do and how are we going to define success and how are we going to define what elite looks like? Mm. And then once you've done that, you say, right, okay, once we've defined it, can we measure it? Okay. If we can measure it, we can start to reverse engineer it and break it down. You say, okay, well, uh, if, if a plant is kept in the dark, is more fertilizer going to help it grow more? No. It's obvious that the limiting factor is light. Mm. And the same is true with athletes. Unfortunately, it's a dynamic process, but with all athletes, there's going to be a limiting factor at some point within their development that is holding them back from where they are relative to where they want to be. Could be tactical, could be technical, could be psychological, could be physical. And this is where it becomes tough as a strength and conditioning coach because if their weakness is tactical, you're going to have to do the, the hard thing for your ego, which is to let go of them and basically do a minimal amount of strength and conditioning, which on surface area makes you look uh, on the surface makes you look far less important that you are, but you're understanding that you're serving the greater good, which is to win. Mm. And then once you've established that framework, then you look at all the tools that you have available to you to address those discrepancies. So those, those training interventions, and the problem is, is that you're, you're taught and the tendency amongst coaches is to go with methods first. So they buy a hammer and then they go looking for nails. When in reality, you need to start with that kind of like blueprint of the house and then understand what it is you're working towards. So 
what would be some of the personality traits that you've seen yourself and other uh, successful um, strength and conditioning coaches? I think I'm, I'm, I'm biased because I'm an extrovert, but um, you, you, someone at some point within that interdisciplinary team is going to have to sweet talk somebody and uh, communicate effectively and persuade others to do what they don't necessarily want to do. And to do that, you need to understand how people work. You need to be able to frame arguments um, in terms which are valuable to that individual um, you have to be able to adjust how you explain things and argue things based on who you're dealing with. And I think when you are certainly in male environments, there is going to be a degree of ego involved, um, particularly if you are not like a, like a physically imposing male. So for example, like I'm, I'm, five foot 10, 80 kilos. And you, you know, you're going to stand in front of a guy that's six, nine, six, 10 and 125 kilos and go, listen to me. Here's what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah. As well as them potentially, you know, being a, a superstar or whatever. And they potentially, think Absolutely. They, they, are, yeah. they, they know best. Yeah. 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 And you know, try doing it in a second language. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so I think successful, um, strength and conditioning coaches or high performance managers, particularly the higher up you go, the more they have those qualities or the more they're able to do a very good impression of those qualities. So you, you can fake it till you make it. I think absolutely there are introverted coaches out there that do very, very good work. But my guess is it's more of an effort for them to do it. Just like for me, it's more of an effort to, um, concern myself with the detail and be super, you know, dotting the I's, crossing the T's because what I'm good at is big picture, communication, energy, like all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's at the individual level. And I think what you need to be aware of at the, the, the team or department level is that you do need a good blend in there because there's a real trend, particularly in America with like sideline clowns. You see it all the time with, oh, oh my God, I can't believe they did this on the sideline. This guy's nuts. Look at his, he's got cough sleeves. Look at, and they'll do like a, an ESPN feature on this uh, strength coach. That guy is not, you know, in the weeds on spreadsheets and data and how do we do this and how do we do that? Um, oh, the boys love him. Well, that's great. But the lunatics are running the asylum. <laughs> um, so you, you're going to have if you want to hire somebody like that you're going to have to have a balancing counterpart in somebody that is a bookworm is a numbers guy is like you know a, a real technician uh, the flip side is where you only have technicians and everybody's drinking sappuccinos and there's no energy because if you just got beat by 50 who do you want to be surrounded by on Monday morning? You don't want to be with the spreadsheet. Like you want to be with a guy that does himself. I would say, right, let's have some fun. 
So I think it's very, very important when you're running a department to not just try and hire clones of yourself. And, um, you know, I think certainly in the last couple of years, I've tried to be cognizant of that and hire individuals around me that, uh, that do really, really good work, but don't necess- necessarily share my um, personality type. You know, I used to hire a guy that we used to call him the, uh, a serial killer because he said so little. <laughs> but he was a very, very good coach. You know, he went on to pro sports. So. so what are some of the biggest positives or opportunities you've got out of doing this? Because, I mean, you've worked with, like we said, Wasps. You've done London Scottish. You went and worked with Argentina. You've done the NRL. You've done Sevens. And, yep. and now in America. So, I mean, you've done a lot. Yeah, I mean, the biggest one would be the, the travel. You know, I... Uh, Less of those country. I didn't. I never did sevens. Like I, I covered. I did. I, I did a tiny bit in China, like very, very short. But the the Olympic sevens came under what we did in Argentina. But I never really touched that. It was mostly the fifteens. But right. yeah, I've worked in England, Australia, Argentina. I lived for two years in Tokyo. Live in America now, and um, you know you get to you get to travel around. Been all over Japan. Got to travel in Australia, you know, a lot of international travel. Got to go to a World Cup, so it's like those. You're, um, you you get to experience those environments. Um, it's obviously not your stage, but just to be next to the people whose stage it is is extremely humbling, and you know, it will, it, those are the experiences that you take away. Um, and just if you're a, if you're a fan of the sport and you, you love athletics in general, all those people that you get to see on TV, you get a front row seat for what it is they do. And, you know, I've seen things in, on training fields. You think, God, I could never do that. If you gave me a hundred goes and they'll just do it <laughs> yeah. like messing around. And if you like to train, you just get to, you get to train people where they were born to do it. And you just get to see that. And you think, wow, that is awesome. And then at times, you know, I've had jobs where it was more <clears throat> lucrative and, you know, there's, there's good money that comes with that. And I, when I went to Japan, that job paid me more in a month than I made in my first year in strength and conditioning. So wow. I made a promise to myself that this is going to be a life-changing amount of money. So I, that was the mentality that I went in with and said, right, you know, I'm going to build for the future and to be able to leave uh, Japan and then go buy a house just outright for cash. That was cool. That is cool. <laughs> Can yeah. you get me a job? <laughs> I was, it was a shit house, but you know. <laughs> yeah. And so what would be some of the negative or less favorable aspects of this industry? It just destroys your personal life. Absolutely destroys it. Um, there's this cliche of, you know, the divorced strength coach in your 40s. And um, it is just all-consuming all-consuming um you know when you're working 80 hours a week there's no time if if you're working 80 hours a week you are uh eating sleeping bathing and then maybe a tiny bit for exercise outside of that there is there's nothing left in the week and you know i'll give you an example somebody reported to me what another coach had said to them which was their biggest regret was that uh they'd allowed their wife to raise their children for them Mm. which is pretty heavy Mm. and when you compete on such a level that strength coaches do for positions there's a very um 
strong power distribution, so that like Pareto distribution, 80-20, you are going to make terrible money for several years. And it's basically, you're just trying to like climb over one another to get to the level where you can start to separate yourself from the crowd and command what it is that you want to earn. But when you get to that point, you can be fired at the drop of a hat. And not only can you be fired at the drop of a hat, it will be completely unrelated to job performance. You are relying on the head coach. You're the head coach's guy or girl. And the head coach has brought you in. And you have a job for as long as that person has a job. So as soon as the new head coach comes in, a lot of the time you say, you're out. So you're taking on a huge amount of risk um, for when you average it out and you factor in the fact that you can be fired, not a ton of reward, which is almost like a double whammy because in the real world, when you expose yourself to risk, you get high reward. And when you insulate yourself from risk, you get to do it for a long time. Um, And that can be difficult. Um, And it can be difficult operating in environments where you're given the responsibility, but not necessarily all of the authority because the, the traditional, the head coach's boss, the head coach knows what they're doing. The head coach is going to tell you what they want you to do. Guess what? They can't even define what it is you do as a strength coach. And yet they're going to tell you how to do your job. So, so all, you have, you have to be able to navigate that extremely well. Are, are these job roles, um, obviously just contracted for X amount of months at a time and then potentially just can be cut at any point. Yeah. So most, most pro teams, uh, you'll be on a fixed duration contract. Um, it, it happens more and more, um, the assistants or like lower level guys will be contracted employees. Um, because it, it can, it makes it a little bit easier to see those kind of long-term projects through to fruition. Um, but yeah, I mean, most elite jobs is going to be a fixed duration contract, but you're not going to have, it, it's fine when you're the head coach and say, Oh, you know, you've got a three year deal. And if it goes South and they fire you, you can just sit and twiddle your thumbs for two years and get paid a couple of million. But if you're getting paid, you know, a couple of hundred grand, well, that's great, but you still have you, you're still going to have to work at the end of it. So you're you're kind of in the wilderness, and it's very much uh, sitting and and waiting by the phone for you know that head coach that you were just with to get another job or to to hope that something comes up. So it can be a real feast and famine. So we've touched on uh, salary a little bit and, you know, you've, you've said, you, you know, you're, you've earned at the high end and you've earned at the low end. And we, we talk a little bit about figures. So we went away and found the averages um, and starting average salary is around 18,000 in the UK. And pounds. then, yeah, 18,000 pounds in the UK. It'll be and less then, than that. It'll be less than that. And then average for somebody with five years experience was around 30,000 to 34,000. I would be surprised if it was even that. Like if you're factoring in, time spent you know from graduation it would be even less wow yeah i'll tell you what i earned if you want Uh, you can if if you're comfortable comfortable doing that yeah yeah so year one so this is 2008 graduation year one zero year two zero year three uh zero year four ten thousand pounds year five twenty five thousand pounds year six 
let's say 50 or well, 45 to 50 year seven uh maybe 65 year eight was you know 180 year nine same and year 10 i went right back down because i started again in different sport that's a that's an immense climb, uh, climb over a very short it? distance over... even though you started off on nothing for the first three years that is a huge climb but that's a lot to put in to do it's a whole degree typical. it's yeah. also not typical <laughs> and to do a whole degree and then for the first three years to earn no money that's that's mad that's and insane. is that is that common oh yeah yeah okay. yeah 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 wow well let's put it this way there's probably let's say there's a hundred strength and conditioning jobs in each of the major professional sports in the uk and that's being generous so rugby union, soccer, rugby league, cricket. Golf, probably not. Nah, not even that. So let's say four to 500 full-time strength and condition jobs in the UK. That's, you know, do, do those people want to leave their jobs? No, they don't. How many people come off the conveyor belt with a strength and conditioning degree in the UK every year? 10,000 plus. Yeah. That's a lot of PE teachers and personal trainers. Yeah. Unfortunately. So- that's a good point, actually, because uh, a lot of my friends or our friends uh, went to uni and did a sports science degree uh, or something similar, and yeah. very few of them actually use it in their day-to-day jobs. There so if somebody's going to actually go away and study it, have you got any advice uh, for them to stand out after they've graduated? Yeah, you have, to, you have to look at what is scarce in the marketplace because... It's just one of those things about business that people tend to spend more money on what is scarce uh, and valuable, of course. So you say, right, what is what is scarce in coaching? And it's not a degree and it's not professional accreditation. It's the, the experience of having operated at the highest level possible and the practical uh, skill and the interpersonal skill of thriving in a team sport environment. Apart from maybe um, collecting 20 guys' bottles of piss every week, um, <laughs> what would be something that's not in the job description that you, uh, you have to go through? Um, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of stuff, you know, like, uh, you know, you, you may have to do a little bit of media, you have to do a little bit of community support, you have to deal with uh, fans in some clubs, you have to deal with parents if you're in the youth system. Uh, you're going to have to do a lot of cajoling of other athlete stakeholders. So if you work in the pros in America, you're going to have to deal with that, that guy or girl's private trainer. You're going to have to deal with, uh, uh, school teachers, uh, school trainers, personal trainers. Um, there's a whole bunch. You're going to have to, uh, be able to learn how to use different forms of, of software. You're going to have to accumulate some, uh, other skills that help support the job that you're never taught. It sounds like such a difficult career to sort of um, build a name for yourself. Cause like you said, you're just competing with everyone for this, this athlete's time. Um, yes, yes. And no, it, it, the, the difficulty in the career does not necessarily come from competing with the competition for demand on the athlete's time. The difficulty comes from the fact that you're competing with hundreds of other coaches for every job. Mm. 
you know, like I'll, I could put up an internship. I have put up an internship and had a hundred applicants that wanted to work for free wow. from all over the world. So you can imagine if it's like a well-paid job and it's like, if you see a job on a, a job site, it's already gone. Like people will be like, Oh, you know, I can't believe, you know, they put this, uh, this job on a job site, how exciting this opportunity is available. And it's mm-hmm. BS. It's like, they're just doing it for legal reasons. And I'll, I'll you know, I'll, find out that I already know the person it's going to and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so that is the challenge. Um, when it comes to uh, the, the, the competing demands on the athlete's time or the athlete's attention and how they spend their time, you just have to understand, you have to understand it for what it is. So if I'll give you an example, a friend of mine works in major league baseball their star player has signed a contract worth $250 million and it's guaranteed. Wow. So how much does the, uh, you know, physical therapist for that team make on 150 to 200,000 a year, or you can go out and if you're that guy and you can pay the world's best physical therapist to live in your house, <laughs> double that amount of money, who are you going to listen to? Yeah you're probably going to listen to your guy that you paid all that money and you're, you know, he has a client list of one and you, you are the Rolls Royce and you're getting all the attention. So my, my colleague's opinion was, well, you know, I don't blame them. If, mm-hmm. if you just signed a $250 million contract, you're going to invest in yourself and surround yourself with the absolute best people that money can buy. So you're going to have, yeah. a, you're going to have a personal chef. You're going to have, you know, your, your own trainer. You're going to have this, you're going to have that. Um, if, a private school is offering a young rugby player uh, a scholarship at one of the mo- one of the most uh, prestigious institutions in the UK. They're putting their money where their mouth is. That you know, people pay Harrow, for example. I think it's thirty grand a year. Mm. So they're going to say, "Hey, we want our pound of flesh. We put money into this athlete's education. We expect to have a say in how they spend their time." So you only get complete control when you uh, represent the, the totality of the investment in that athlete, mm. which is what the soccer teams do in the UK. It makes sense. You know, they'll, they'll get, their, uh, get their claws into athletes at very, very young ages and make sure that everything is provided to them. Um, you know, not to be too cynical, athletes to professional sports teams are assets and you must uh, own and cultivate and develop your assets if you want to maximally serve your business. Mm. So what does the kind of future look like for you, Kier? You, Cause you've got a, a strength and conditioning uh, website for, for coaches, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's strengthcoachnetwork.com. And it's, uh, it kind of ties into a lot of the questions that you've asked me on this chat, which is, I really struggled for two years to be, to even get myself into a position where I was valuable enough to work for free. And I, I kind of reflected and said, well, you know, what, what is it that I lacked? And it was exposure to an understanding of what is required to function at the elite level in a team environment and a network of people that actually work in that environment. And having uh, strategic advice about how do you how do you reverse engineer that pathway that it is you want to tread so that's what i tried to build with it and right now my my focus is on continuing to to build that and to try and serve our members and 
uh, really make uh, a concerted effort to address what it is that I feel are the shortcomings with um, continuing education for strength and conditioning professionals. And uh, would you go into the industry knowing everything you know now on your, uh, on your path? Uh, yeah, I would. I would. Um, what I would not do uh, is this is the problem with higher education. If, you know, if I come off the conveyor belt of having got my degree and I realize I know nothing as a coach and, you know, I was, I was fortunate. I graduated 12 years ago. So let's say I think used to, I used to pay 1500 a year in tuition. Now it's 9,000 pounds. Is that right? Yeah. That is, yeah. yeah. So you're paying 27 grand to realize that, you know, nothing as a coach. <laughs> yeah, so, and that, and that's yeah. without cost of living on top as well. Exactly, right? So if you is it conceivable that if you went to school to study dentistry that you could not do a passable job of being a junior dentist upon qualification? Mm. No. You it's expected. When you qualify as a dentist, you're gonna be able to work in a, a dental clinic. And the same is true of, you know, if you're an engineer or um, you know, a doctor, it takes longer, but it's still the expectation that you are learn you are training for a job and you're qualified to do that job when you leave higher education. And this to me is where the reforms need to be uh, made in higher education for sports performance. And I always get the reply, you know, not everyone wants to, wants to work in elite sport. And then my reply is, well, don't go to university then. <laughs> because you don't need to go to university to train the general population or we could adopt more of um, an apprenticeship uh, system. But to me, the more practical the discipline, the more practical the education needs to be. You're not going to learn how to train uh, in the gym and on the field. And as a member of an interdisciplinary team with your head in a book, you're going to need to read a lot of books, but that is not going to represent the, a complete education. So if I ask, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I suppose the other thing is with um, you obviously wanting to go into rugby. That is a very yeah. different sport to the other three main, the other sports in England, such as cricket and um, football. And therefore I suppose you at university, you were thrown in a class that had all those people potentially wanting to go into any sort of sport. And so, but the principles are universal. I mean, it's all sport is just movement-based problem solving. So there are there are specifics, and there's stuff that you know is esoteric to to certain sports. But it's all movement-based problem solving, and there's not a lot of coaches coming off the conveyor belt that can facilitate others to solve movement-based problems, regardless of the sport. And you know, if I'm asking myself. Why did I spend all that money? In reality, it was to take off the table the objection that when I applied for jobs that I didn't have a degree. So I think what needs to, what needs to happen is if we are going to charge people that amount of money, we need to make sure that they, it's, um, we're producing people that can make an immediate impact in the environment when they qualify and that the professional accreditation is, is baked into the degree, which it is not currently. Um, and if we're not going to do that, we need to remove that as one of the hoops that people have to jump through and provide other routes to professional sport that offer better value for money. 
Do you think um, professional sports, uh, the special professional sports industry, should do more in aiding students um, in, at university level? So a lot of um, a lot of degrees now have a gap year where you go out and you take a year in industry. Is that available, and or should that be? Uh, I believe it is available at a lot of schools. I'm not sure it was available in that format when I was at school. Uh, but yes, and it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a year of congratulations, now you're a coach. What I would want to do is that kind of like medical school uh, education where you may maybe spend half the day in the lecture hall, half the day in the hospital. And it's that kind of like crawl, walk, run uh, development where, okay, take the notes. Okay, now you can do vaccinations for kids. Now you can do this basic, uh, you know, maybe a basic uh, stitches surgery. Now you can sit in on this operation. Now you can do this. Now you can do this. Now you can do this. And it just doesn't exist um, right now within sports science strength and conditioning programs that I'm aware of. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Keir. I've really enjoyed chatting to you and, and learning all about this this part of the industry that it's just no one really. It's talks there, about but it. nobody really knows much about it yeah. in England. Yeah, it's it's still a very nascent field, um, and that is one of the things that I think goes against it because you know if you're familiar with Nassim Taleb's writing, he talks about this thing called the Lindy effect, which is the longer something has been around the longer it's going to be around for because if something is around long enough, anything that can happen will happen and weak things get removed from the gene pool and the things that make sense hang around. So if you look at, you know, business, the military, uh, politics, like all these other things have been around for millennia. So they've had a lot more time to weed out things that don't work uh, in the gene pool. And if you look at, you know, formalized sport, I think association football was what, the 1830s? Mm. How, you know, true professional sport, decades. Rugby yeah. has been pro for 25 years. We're still figuring out what does and doesn't work. And I think it's like we're still in the, the kind of like adolescent phase of understanding true high-performance sport. And I was um, it's I was going to be painful. <laughs> I was listening to to James Haskell talk uh, on one of, one of his podcasts or something, and he's talking about the time when he went to play. I think it was in French France French rugby. Yeah, he played um, Yeah, and the, he was talking about the uh, the uh, health and fitness coach um, dietary sort of uh, restrictions, and they're yeah. on the coach traveling to the game, and he was like, "I'm hungry," and he went, "Yeah, get off the coach and get a pasty, mate." <laughs> yeah. And it's like that's yeah. professional rugby. Like, how is that still a thing? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it, 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 I I know. I mean, I've I've gone out with them. Like, I've gone to a party with a bunch of um, players from a, a, a very high level French club, and they were all like pissed. Just like they had <laughs> well, had a cigarette after the game. They, you know, on the on the Van Rouge afterwards, and it, it you you do have to have you do have to understand that athletes must have a life. Yeah. Um, and they're entitled to a private life. Uh, and the, to certain extents, 
Um, you have to sail with the wind of culture. And if that's the French culture, you can't push too hard against it. But like I've gone in, I went into the clubhouse and that, you know, the dessert they had was whipped cream and sugar. <laughs> it, it tasted really good. <laughs> well, it, it wasn't too long ago. I think it was England. It was England playing. I can't remember who they were against. And it was, I think Ellis Genge got the man of the match and he had a beer in his interview. And people were like, what are you doing? You're having a beer. You're supposed to be a professional athlete. And it's like, you on about he's just got man of the match give him a break let him celebrate yeah you know the reply would it should be it's none of your business Mm, well again thank you so much where can people find you on instagram and you've already mentioned your website but please say yeah well if you you know any any kind of social platform if you search rugby strength coach i'll uh, i'll pop up and um you can also search for strength coach network and my website, so rugbystrengthcoach.com and strengthcoachnetwork.com. And I would say the distinction between those two is, you know, if you're a, an aspiring strength and conditioning professional, you should go to Strength Coach Network. And if you're more interested in rugby-specific uh, products and services, then you should go to the other one. Brilliant. Thanks again, Keir. Pleasure. Thanks for having Cheers. me. Cheers. Bye.